Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Proximo Weekly Debrief. This week I decided to take a look at the oil and gas sector, which has endured immense tumult as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic. To probe this question, I interviewed Ian Cogswell. Ian is a senior advisor at Portland Advisors, where he focuses on transactions across the energy sector. He joined Portland at the start of 2020, having spent more than 25 years in the banking industry, the majority of which within the project finance industry. He is also one of the four founders of CCC Training, which focuses exclusively on providing project finance training across the energy, infrastructure and sustainable finance sectors. I asked Ian for his expert opinion on how the oil and gas industry has weathered the COVID storm. Right, so Ian, there is no doubt, I think, that 2020 has been an incredibly hard year for the oil and gas sector. I mean, could you tell me a bit about some of the greatest challenges that EMP companies or other industry players have faced throughout the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, thanks, Thomas. So I think um, the key issue really for all of these companies is uncertainty. So the, the industry is characterized by a degree of uncertainty anyway. You know, you're looking at oil and gas um, companies, exploration and production is an uncertain business, but compounding that with the COVID-19 pandemic has caused issues. I think, um, you know, there's some practical examples of that, for instance, when, um, you know, the, the pandemic first hit and oil prices fell quite considerably um, in sort of March time, um, the, the issue for a lot of the EMP companies is you know, what do you do? Do you shut down your wells? Do you keep them open? Those that are, um, you know, on the on the borderline between e- being economic or not. And there's obviously a cost of shutting in a well or, or closing it down for a period of time and making those decisions on which to keep operating at a loss and for how long that creates certain, you know, issues for all of those companies. And we noticed that, um, you know, in that first half of the year, which companies were operating wells at a loss, how long to keep those operating. That was a big issue for the EMP companies. And I think that was also exacerbated a little bit by you know, the OPEC decision to maintain output. So with, with once the oil prices fell, if you then have this, this decision to maintain output at a, at a higher level than the market would necessarily um, have dictated, Again, it had an issue for some of those marginal players where they were they were you know, were hoping to see um, you know, the, the, the production fall and then maintain a certain level of price a certain price level that didn't happen for a, for a good period of time. It's taken quite a long time for the oil price to rebound. So that commitment from OPEC to maintain those output levels compounded the issue of COVID. Um, and I think you know therefore what's happening is going forward. Um, the decision on on making additional capital expenditure to main pro- maintain production, you know, that's a, that's a, a significant problem for many of the EMP companies. And uh, you know, what will happen in the, in twenty twenty one? You know, that will be an inter- interesting to see. Thank you. And um, I mean, how do you think that the sector has tried to respond or? adapt to the difficulties posed by COVID-19? Well, I, I mean, I think, as I just mentioned there, this, this issue on CapEx spending has probably been the key reaction. Um, I noticed you know, from figures that I, 
being bandied around that that looks like being a drop in um, capex spend in 2020 of around about a hundred billion dollars by the the oil and gas industry. That's a reduction of around about 20 percent. Now, of course. Um, that, ha that has been the initial response. Now, the problem with that reduction, reduction in capex of that magnitude means that it's going to probably filter through to a reduction in production in 2021. Now, if that if oil prices continue to rebound, that will be, have a have a detrimental impact on those companies that can't take advantage of the of the increase in the oil price if it happens. So, but that's been the key. I think. As, as normally happens in these, you know, when these circumstances arise, the immediate reaction is to, to reduce capex. And we've seen that as well, not just in the smaller EMP companies, but in the big players, the likes of Exxon that completely cut its capex program for 2020, um, huge reductions there. So, you know, that, that impact in the future, we'll see, but that's been the way that, that the companies have primarily reacted. Yes, and actually just looking a little bit to the future, um, although oil prices have not quite returned to pre-pandemic levels, there has been something of a recovery in the oil price, oil price since its sort of dramatic fall in March and April. I mean, do you think this is indicative of a longer term recovery for the sector as we move towards 2021? Um, who knows? I mean, <laughs> if we could predict the future of the oil and gas industry, we'd all be very, very rich. I mean, I think what, one thing I have noticed is you know, the, um, the impact of technology, like the, 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 the drive to maybe developing projects using new technology. Um, you know, we, I've been involved in, in, a, in a project with Siemens Energy over the last few weeks, which is developing a, a white paper on um, the use of technology in, in the EMP industry in the, in the drive towards a net zero um, economy and net, net zero production. And I think that one of the, um, you know, in terms of a recovery in the sector, I think that, that will, one of the positive impacts is looking at how technology can, um, can help support this drive to a, a, you know, a net zero approach um so I, i'm not sure that the this the, the increase the recent increase in the oil price is is necessarily indicative of a longer term recovery i think it's certainly a reaction to um the significant fall in the first half of the year and you know the, the oil price fell to levels that i think generally are considered to be unsustainable but what it's what it's what it has um, what, how that has filtered through is to looking at how the oil industry can utilize new technology to make um, perhaps developments more economic at lower oil prices. Thanks Ian and just finally are there any particular oil and gas deals that have closed this year despite the difficulties um, that stand out to you as being particularly remarkable? I think there are there are two or three deals that I'd probably like to highlight. The first one is not a deal that's closed, but it's a deal that reached, um, the, uh, for which a, a, an FID was announced in September. And that's the, um, the Arctic LNG project. Um, that's, that's remarkable um, for a number of reasons. One, it's, you know, it's around about a 
this $20 billion plus transaction. So we're looking at still the investment in certain oil and gas related transactions is still there. And, and whilst we've had, you know, issues to do with falling oil prices, issues relating to um, increased um, environmental and social awareness around the industry, there's still a huge demand for certain projects. And those projects, the like, you know, particularly gas related projects that are going to be providing LNG, which will then be transported and fuel maybe LNG to power projects in different parts of the world. Um, you know, I think it's it's still notable that these projects are being done. And I would of, of course highlight that that Portland is advising on uh, on the Arctic LNG project. Um, so, but but again, it's it, it is it is notable that those projects that are significant um, are still being still going forward, are still reaching FID, and 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 hopefully that will be financed in twenty twenty one. Um, more recently as well, we've seen a couple of deals that have reached financial close and have um, issues for, for particular reasons. We saw very recently, Chris saw um, increased um, its um, RBL facility from um, $3 billion to $4.5 billion. So again, um, you know, that is, you know, that to primarily raised to fund the, uh, the acquisition of Premier Oil. So we're still seeing, you know, um, for good companies, Chrysler is, is an example of a company that over the last few years has been able to raise significant amount of debt based upon its assets, now making acquisitions. Um, again, um, you know, it's notable if it's a large transaction. The other thing that's notable about that deal as well is increase, like in a number of transactions, the margins are linked to carbon emissions. And so we're seeing this drive now to looking at new ways of bringing in a greener element to some of the, you know, the upstream oil and gas projects, which, which have not been, um, you know, not necessarily noted for their uh, environmental and uh, environmental friendliness. And then the other, on the other side of the coin, you've got um, Cosmos's RBL, which was recently reduced from, uh, well, reduced by about 130 million due to the redetermination of the borrowing base, um, primarily linked to lower oil prices. Um, but Cosmos was able to, or apparently will be able to make those repayments from its existing liquidity, so available liquidity. So that again highlights for me the, 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 the fact that the RBL product is still, it still works and it's been around for 50 years or whatever and it is still working very well and, and, and it's taking account of the circumstances. Um, to work for both the borrower and the lender. So there are notable transactions in this industry. They you know, are still either, either going to reach financial close in the near future or have just this year. Um, and I think it highlights that despite all of the issues, despite COVID, despite falling oil prices, despite um, increasing moves to environmental and social awareness and bringing ESG into transactions, there's still a, still a huge uh, still a huge amount of room for oil and gas transactions in the project finance sector. Thanks Ian, and on behalf of Proxmo I can say that uh, your insights have been very very interesting today and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you once again to Ian Cogswell for joining us this week. I thought I would now draw your attention to a couple of interesting pieces of content from Proximo. First, I urge you to sign up for our upcoming webinar, the Proximo 2020 Festive Trends Roundup, which promises to be very entertaining. 
Our panel of key market players will attempt to dissect what 2020 has meant for the project, infrastructure and energy finance markets. A daunting task indeed. The webinar goes live on 17 December 2020 at 3pm UK time. Visit our website to save your spot. Like all our webinars, it will also be available to watch on demand if you cannot make the original broadcast time. This week I also recommend Proximo editor Sean Keating's piece Fibre Under the Optic, released as part of Proximo's weekly newsletter. In the article, Keating takes a fascinating look at debt and equity appetite in the European FTTH market. The article is free to view on the Proximo site. Finally, I would like to take you through some of the best stories covered by Proximo's journalists this week. Norwegian energy company Equinor has mandated Societe Generale for the financing of its 816-megawatt Empire Wind offshore wind project in New York. The French bank is understood to be running a request for proposals for an advisory firm to assist with the tax equity portion of the capital raise. Equinor acquired the ocean lease for the Empire Wind project in 2017 and went on to win a 25-year contract for offshore wind energy certificates from the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority in 2019. Construction on the contracted phase of Empire Wind is expected to begin in 2022, and commercial operations are scheduled for December 2024. Ethiopia has issued RFPs for two telecoms licenses, with the deadline for bids set for 5 March 2021. However, the deadline to show an interest in receiving the RFP documents is 10 December. The initial license term will run for at least 15 years, with the option of renewal thereafter. There will also be a range of spectrums available across multiple frequency bands between 800 MHz to 2600 MHz. Norway's risk management and quality assurance firm DNVGL has suspended work on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline project led by Russia's Gazprom for fear of being sanctioned by the United States. DNVGL said the United States had issued new guidelines for its Protecting Europe's Energy Security Act, which targets the Nord Stream 2 project. Maryland has reached a $250 million agreement with Purple Line Transit Partners that marks the end of the current round of litigation over the P3 delivery of the 16-mile Purple Line light rail project. Following the financial settlement, Fluor will not participate with Meridium and Start America as developers and equity partners in the PPP moving forward. Purple Line Transit Constructors, the lead contractor responsible for the design-build portion of the project, walked away from the project citing increased costs due to third-party lawsuits, delayed right-of-way acquisition and changes to regulations and third-party agreements after the project was underway. The Maryland Department of Transportation assumed control of the project while the parties continued to work on an agreement. Providing the agreement is approved by the Board of Public Works, Meridium and Star America will initiate a solicitation for a new design-build contractor. SSE Renewables and Equinor have reached financial close on the project financing of the 1.2 gigawatt Doggerbank A and 1.2 gigawatt Doggerbank B offshore wind farms located off the coast of the UK. The debt comprises a 1.5 billion pound loan from three ECAs including BPI France, EKN and GIEK and around £4 billion of commercial bank debt. According to a source with knowledge of the deal, the tenor on the debt runs for the length of the project's three to four year construction period and their 15 year contracts for difference, giving the debt a tenor of around 19 years door to door. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Please join us again next week for more of your latest project finance and infrastructure news from Proximo.